It is truly a joy to sing together with you about the greatness of our God and his worthiness to be praised and to be thanked. So we look forward to Thanksgiving. We just think of so many countless ways we can give thanks, most of all for God being who he is, for sending his son for us. As we return to our study in John 14, we can note that the focus in this chapter so far has been on the disciples becoming troubled in heart after they find out Jesus is going away. And so Jesus takes time to comfort their troubled hearts with truth about himself. And Jesus has been driving repeatedly at the need for the disciples to believe in him. And even in our text this morning, he will continue to make reference to the importance of believing in him. Our text is John 14, verses 12 through 14. John 14, verses 12 through 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for blessing us with your word. What a treasure we hold in our hands, and what a glorious Christ we behold in it. Help us to see him more clearly through Scripture's testimony of him. And may our trust in him grow, that we might serve him more faithfully. Stir us to grow in living wholeheartedly for Christ as we walk through this text this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus has previously called his disciples to believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and he has called them to believe that he reveals his Father, and that he and his Father mutually indwell each other. And in our passage this morning, now Jesus is going to describe the glorious results that come from that believing, believing in him, believing he is who he says he is. As a way of continuing to comfort the disciples, he now turns their attention back to the mission that he has for them to be his witnesses when he goes away. And Jesus speaks powerful promises to his disciples regarding the resources that will be available to them to accomplish the mission that he has set out for them. And these promises are not only for the 11 in this upper room, but for all of us here today who are believing in Jesus. The promise is to the, to the one who believes in him. And so my desire for you this morning as we walk through this passage is that you would be encouraged by Christ's promises to us who believe that he will supply what we need as we seek to live our lives in service to him. And the first promise of Christ that we see in this passage is that believers in Christ will do Christ-like works. It's verse 12. Believers in Christ will do Christ-like works. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, 
and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, here is a fixed and firm truth that you can count on. Jesus has already made a few of these truly, truly statements in the upper room in John 13, verses 16 and 17. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. And then in verse 20, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. We see there that those truly, truly statements were focused on Jesus sending his disciples out as his witnesses. And then he drops a heavy truly, truly statement in verse 31 when he says that one from among them is going to betray him. And then he follows that with more heavy news about his departure, and that sets the disciples off. They become trouble in heart, and so Jesus takes time to speak words of comfort to them, encouraging them to believe in, the, in him. And then that brings us to our passage this morning where it appears that Jesus is returning to what he had started to talk about in his early, earlier truly, truly statements. He returns to the topic of sending the disciples out as his witnesses when he departs. He comforts the disciples with promises that though he is going away, he will continue to provide for them. They will have a mission to fulfill in the world as his witnesses, and he will provide the resources that they need to accomplish that mission. Look back at verse 12, John 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. What a glorious promise. The one who believes in Jesus can count on this promise. Believers in Jesus are promised to receive divine enablement to do the kinds of works that Jesus did. They will be enabled to reflect Jesus in their lives as his witnesses. Think about it this way. Jesus came to reveal his Father. But Jesus is going away. And so there will be a need for an ongoing witness in the world after he is gone that will continue to point people to him as the way to the Father. And so Jesus promises here that all who believe in him will do works like him. Jesus is going away, but he will ensure his disciples are supplied the grace needed to reflect him as his witnesses. They will be enabled to testify of him and to live lives that back up that testimony. As we continue in verse 12, we find that Jesus adds even more weight to this promise. It's already got loads of weight to it. He says, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do. Because I go to the Father. It's amazing. He says, greater works than these he will do. Greater works than what Jesus has done. How can it be that Jesus' disciples could be promised to do greater works than him? In what sense will their works be greater? 
Well, notice first that the basis of the greater works is seen in the phrase, because I go to the Father. That is a causal phrase. The cause of the greater works is Jesus going to the Father. And all the implications that flow out from that. In other words, Jesus' going away to his Father is precisely what is going to secure this promise of greater works for the believers. That concept right there helps us to not be pitting Jesus' works and these greater works of believers against each other in some kind of competitive comparison. Jesus is ultimately behind it all. And Jesus' purpose in disclosing this information to the disciples is so that he can help them have the perspective that his departure is actually going to be beneficial for them. There is good reason for him to go to his Father. Jesus' departure to the Father will enable them to do these greater works. So now that we understand the cause of the greater works, let's look at the nature of these greater works of believers. In what sense are these works greater? If we think about it within the context of Jesus sending his disciples out as his witnesses, and we know that later on Jesus would eventually give the Great Commission to take the gospel to the remotest parts of the earth, then we can understand that Jesus is not speaking of a greater quality of works than what Jesus did, but rather a greater extent. There's a greater geographic extent. Jesus' ministry had largely been focused in Israel, and there's minimal reach to the Gentiles at this point. Once Jesus dies, arises, and ascends to his Father, the time will come for the message of the good news to go out into the world. And Jesus will send the Holy Spirit, who will empower his disciples to take that message out into the world. And so the geographical extent would go from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and to the remotest parts of the earth. We can also think of this greater extent in terms of conversions to Christ. There will be many more conversions to Christ that will come after his ascension than occurred during his time on the earth. Christ will continue to accomplish his work of saving sinners by sending out his disciples to bear witness of him in the world. And those witnesses will beget more witnesses, which will beget more witnesses. And the gospel will spread through the earth, and the elect throughout the earth will be brought to conversion to Christ. It is in this sense that those who believe in Jesus will do works like him, indeed greater works than these, because he is going to the Father. It's important that we understand that these greater, result, greater works will be the result of Christ working in and through his disciples. Similarly to how Jesus had said his Father was abiding in him and doing his works in him, so Jesus will abide in his disciples and do his works through them. And they will do greater works by his grace greater in extent throughout the earth, greater in extent in terms of conversions that will result when Jesus goes to the Father, sends the Spirit, believers are empowered to be his witnesses throughout the earth. Jesus, 
As already said, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one saint greater than the one who sent him. So believers are not going to be greater than Jesus. Rather, Jesus will work through them to complete the Great Commission work that he has planned for them to fulfill. The disciples who are troubled in heart need to know it's good that Jesus is going away to the Father because it will result in them being enabled to be faithful witnesses for him. His departure will not be a defeat. It will serve to strengthen the disciples to be his witnesses. And what a blessing it is to know that this promise is for everyone who believes. That includes all of us here today who are believing in Christ. That is a promise for you, church. Amazing. What a blessing to know that Jesus has promised that through faith in him, your lives come to reflect him. It is troubling to live in a world that is fallen, a world that is full of evil, a world that is in rebellion against God. But you must remember what you're here for. You're here to be a witness for Christ, to be a light shining in the darkness. You're here to participate in the Great Commission. What an immense blessing it is that Christ promises to you who believe. He promises that you will be enabled to do Christ-like works, that you will be enabled to reflect Christ in what you say and in what you do, and that you will be enabled to be a witness of the majesty of Christ. That's what you're here for, to point people to Christ your Savior, to point people to the one who is the way and the truth and the life, the only one, Jesus Christ. Now look with me at Ephesians 2. I want you to see here Paul saying something similar regarding works and God's work in our lives to produce them. Paul tells the Ephesian saints that they've been saved by grace through faith. We'll look at verses 8 through 10. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You see here that the believer is saved by grace, through faith, not through works. But verse 10 says they are saved for good works. We're not saved by good works, but for good works. When God saves you through faith in Christ, you become his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, that God has prepared beforehand that you might walk in them as a new creature in Christ. God prepares the works beforehand that you would walk in them. See, the same truth here in Ephesians 2 as we saw in John 14, that those who have truly believed in Jesus are promised they will have works that reflect belief in Jesus. Those who trust in Jesus will be progressively conformed to his likeness. They will receive divine enablement to do Christ-like works as his witnesses. And it's all of grace. It's from God's hand. It is Christ's work in his disciples. 
He takes people dead in sin and deserving of everlasting wrath, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and he saves them and turns them into people that reflect his goodness through the good works he prepares for them to walk in, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Does that encourage you, saints? That's what he's done with you who believe in him, taking you from being dead in sin, alive in Christ, walking in the ways of Christ by his grace. Your promise that you will receive divine enablement to be an imitator of Jesus, to testify of him with your words, to live lives that back up that testimony, to live lives that demonstrate that he really does save and transform lives. So the first promise that Jesus makes here to those who believe is that believers in Christ will do Christ-like works. When Jesus goes away, he will leave his disciples behind to continue the work of testifying about him and his Father. He promises continued provision for them to accomplish the greater works of making more disciples and spreading the gospel to the remotest part of the earth. That brings us to a second promise that Jesus makes to those who believe in him. Believers in Christ will receive answers to Christ-honoring prayers. Verses 13 and 14, back in John 14. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That first promise that we looked at was was quite overwhelming when you start to really think about the implications of it. And yet Jesus continues to amaze us with another glorious promise concerning his answers to the prayers of those who believe in him. The whatever and anything here seems to open wide the possibilities of what believers can ask for and count on receiving from him. The in the name, of course, puts a good parameter on it. Anything they ask for, as as long as it is something fitting to be asked in his name, he will assuredly do it. To ask in Jesus' name is to acknowledge that Jesus is our mediator, 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And the end of Hebrews 4 explains that Jesus is our access to the throne of grace for help in our time of need. Asking in Jesus' name affirms that he is our mediator, the one that we need to mediate for us. It also affirms Jesus' authority. If my prayers have my name on them, That doesn't give them much weight. But put Jesus' name on there. That gives those prayers all the weight that they need. Because he possesses supreme authority. Also, whatever I ask in his name is going to have to be something consistent with his will, as he won't put his name on something contrary to his will. Marshall so helpfully made that point to us in his sermon a few Sundays ago on prayer. We need to be content to receive whatever God ultimately wills. He is in charge. Asking Jesus' name also affirms our dependence on Jesus. Even the very word ask 
affirms our dependence on Him. He possesses supreme authority over all things, and so we are dependent on Him to secure the provisions that we need. Asking in Jesus' name is, is not using His name as some kind of magical, mystical phrase that unlocks the provisions of heaven just because you said the words. Not that it's a problem to say the words in Jesus' name when, when you pray. That is a good practice if you're acknowledging Christ as your mediator and his authority and your dependence on him. But thinking that simply tacking those words onto a prayer as a special mystical formula will, will somehow get the answers that you want. It misses the true significance of what it is to pray in Jesus' name. Praying in Jesus' name is also not treating Jesus like a genie in a bottle who responds to your wishes with the words, your wish is my command. We are not to command or demand anything from Jesus. We are to ask. We are at his mercy as sovereign Lord. We see Jesus echoing the same kind of attitude toward prayer that he's already been instilling in the disciples previously when he taught them to pray. Let's go to Luke 11. Beginning in verse 1. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. You see here the, the hallowedness of the Father's name. It is to be hallowed. There is the authority of his kingdom. There's physical provision he provides, physical provision in the daily bread. There's his spiritual provision of forgiveness of sins, grace to forgive others, and deliverance from temptation. We see here the Father's authority, the Father's provision, the disciples' dependence on the Father. These characteristics should mark their prayers. And these same characteristics are conveyed when Jesus talks about praying in his name in verses 13 and 14 of John 14. But there's something absolutely astonishing that Jesus adds to the mix when he makes this promise about prayer in, in John 14. He actually states and restates this second promise regarding answers to prayer. He does it once in verse 13, when he says, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. And then again in verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Basically says the same thing twice there. But the second time he adds one little pronoun that makes a huge statement about himself. Do you notice in verse 14 that he says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you ask me, Jesus is saying, if you ask me. 
We saw in our passage last Sunday that Jesus said, I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me. Now, Jesus is not intending to move us away from the general practice of addressing our prayers to our Father in heaven. What he's doing here is he is yet again making a claim to deity. Only God can answer someone's prayers. Only someone who is truly God and truly man can mediate their prayers. Jesus has really been laying it on in this upper room discourse concerning his equality in divine nature with his Father so that he could say, ask me and I will do it. Jesus is encouraging the disciples with this glorious promise that anything they ask him in his name, he will do. Jesus is going away to the Father, but that's actually good for them because he will be hearing their prayers in his name and will be answering those prayers. They've been depending on him while he's been with them all this time and they can continue to count on him. In response to their prayers, he will be supplying whatever they need to accomplish their mission as his witnesses. What a magnificent promise. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. There's one more element of this promise that I want you to notice. Sandwiched in between Jesus' two similar statements of the second promise. Look back at verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. The so that indicates a statement of purpose. What is the purpose of all of this talk about prayer? We are to ask for what we need in our service to Christ as his witnesses. We're to do so in Jesus' name so that Jesus can mediate those prayers and mediate heaven's supply to answer those prayers. And when this happens, the Father will thereby be glorified in the Son. The purpose of this all is ultimately for the Father to be glorified in the Son. And so we ought to pray with that purpose in mind. We should want our prayers to be focused on what will most glorify the Father in the Son. These are the kinds of Prayers that God will answer. Prayers that acknowledge the need for Christ's mediation. Prayers that acknowledge His authority and convey a desire to align with His will. Prayers that acknowledge dependence on Him. The prayers that are focused on the Father being glorified in the Son. If you'll look with me for a moment at James 4, I want you to see a couple of ways that our asking can go awry. The context in James 4 is quarrels, conflicts, and that their pleasures are ultimately underneath and driving their conflicts, their selfish pleasures and desires. And he goes on in verse 2, talking about them lusting and not having, so they commit murder. You are envious, cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Then he says this with respect to prayer. 
you do not have because you do not ask. There's a principle there in verse 2 that we can slip off in one direction by depending on ourselves and therefore not asking for God's help at all. A prayerlessness. We ought to be asking of God, but we're not. And so, therefore, we don't have, we don't receive. And then in verse 3, there's a situation where one does ask. You ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures, those pleasures that stir up that conflict and battle among them. And so even when we do pray, we can slip off in another way by asking according to our selfish pleasures rather than focusing our prayers on the will and the glory of God. I want us to now go to 1 John chapter 5, one of John's letters, same John who writes the Gospel of John. And John reinforces later on in this letter what we're seeing back here in John 14. And it also harmonizes with what we saw in James 4. It's 1 John 5, verses 14 and 15. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. So we understand here, we receive answers to whatever we ask, provided that our prayers are consistent with the will of God. And that's the desire of every true believer in Christ. We want the will of God to be done. We want our prayers that are not in sync with his will to fall to the floor. And we are encouraged to know that our prayers that are in sync with his will will be answered. That's where our confidence lies. He hears our prayers that accord with his will, and he has the power to answer those prayers. We who believe in Jesus have been given a remarkable promise from him regarding our prayers. As Jesus' witnesses, he will supply for us whatever we need to fulfill this calling. We simply need to ask. Does that not encourage your heart, saints? When you think about the Lord's work here in our own lives and, and in our church and in our ministry to the community around us, he says, ask, and I will do it. Pray according to my will, and you will receive it. Aim your prayers at the glorification of the Father in the Son, and it will be done. One of my prayers for us as a church has been just the simple request that we might glorify God in all that we do. Lord, use us for your glory. Let us be a church that is laser focused on you being glorified in all that is done here. Let Christ's promise stir you to pray all the more toward this end because we need him to accomplish his work among us. Pray that we would be empowered to be faithful witnesses for Christ. Pray that we would be strengthened to make disciples like he's called us to do. 
that we would be faithful to baptize those who are saved by Christ and to teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. Because that's what Jesus said we're to do when he gave the Great Commission. So let's be praying for the Lord to bless us to be fruitful toward that end for his glory. Jesus talked about praying for more laborers to be sent out into the harvest. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. We should pray for more laborers to be raised up among us and sent out from among us. And may we also be stirred to pray for laborers who've already been sent out, our missionaries. What a privilege it is for us to partner with them, asking in Jesus' name for their ministries to flourish for the glory of God. To pray for the gospel to go forth in the various places around the world where the Lord has positioned them to be. Let us be mindful of them and be engaged in praying for them. Now I want to come back to the foundational condition underlying the promises that Christ makes to his disciples in that upper room. These promises are for those who believe in Christ. If you don't believe in him, these promises are not yours. Perhaps there's someone here today who realizes you've not truly believed in him. The focus of your life has not been to serve him. Rather, it has been to pursue your own desires. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. If you realize you've been going your own way, I want to urge you to repent, to turn from your way and turn to the way, Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. You need to believe in the Jesus who is the only way of salvation. You need to believe in Jesus who is the Son of God, who took on human flesh. He lived a perfect, sinless life in the place of his people so that they could be counted righteous through faith. And then he was obedient all the way to the point of death on the cross to pay the penalty for the disobedience of his people so that they could be spared the wrath to come. And then he rose from the dead and demonstrated that he had defeated sin and death for his people so that his people could have life in his name. And so I urge you, if you don't have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, let today be the day that you repent of your sins, that you trust in Christ, that you cry out for, to him to have mercy on you, a sinner, because he is a merciful Savior. He is mighty to save. He delights in those kinds of prayers, to seek mercy from him, to believe on his Son. You're not guaranteed tomorrow, so trust in him today. Embrace Jesus as king over your life by faith. And consider what blessing will come when you trust in him. We think about these promises that come for those who believe in Jesus. Believers in Christ will do Christ-like works. You trust in Christ, your life gets transformed. You're made a new creation in Christ who God has then prepared works beforehand for you to walk in. 
to display his goodness, to glorify him. Then he promises that believers in Christ will receive answers to Christ-honoring prayers. He provides whatever is needed for his people. He is benevolent to us. He is good. He gives liberally and without reproach to the one who asks. This is our God. This is a relationship of one who trusts in Jesus, who's saved by Jesus. They're invited to offer up prayer to God and to know that God answers those prayers that are in accord with with his will, that are in his name, that are for his glory. He provides the resources we need to serve him. We can count on it. We simply need to lean into these promises, to take the Lord at his word, to actually believe what he says. Be willing to walk in Christ-like works as his witnesses, to put off the deeds of the flesh that run counter to these kinds of works, the kinds of things that Jesus did. Remember, you were bought with a price. That means he owns us. And we are to glorify God, therefore, with our bodies. We're to have our lives live for him, not for ourselves. Be devoted to prayer. We can always grow in learning to depend upon God in prayer. It's always a good reminder the Lord, we would ask the Lord that he would stir us up to live for his glory in our personal lives, that, that the Lord use us as a church for his glory, that the Lord would continue to bless us to mature as a body in the faith, that the Lord might grant boldness to us to be his witnesses, which is what he's called us to be, brought us out of darkness into light to proclaim the light. Ask the Lord to open up opportunities for us to reap the harvest in Plainfield and surrounding areas for the glory of God. I want to close with a prayer from a Puritan in the Valley of Vision. It's a prayer that really captures the heart of wanting to be used of the Lord in his service as his witnesses for his glory. Let's pray. Sovereign God, thy cause, not my own, engages my heart. And I appeal to thee with greatest freedom to set up thy kingdom in every place where Satan reigns. Glorify thyself and I shall rejoice. For to bring honor to thy name is my sole desire. I adore thee that thou art God and long that others should know it, feel it, and rejoice in it. Oh, that all men might love and praise thee, that thou mightest have all glory from the intelligent world. Let sinners be brought to thee for thy dear name. To the eye of reason, everything respecting the conversion of others is as dark as midnight. But thou canst accomplish great things. The cause is thine, and it is to thy glory that men should be saved. Lord, use me as thou wilt. Do with me what thou wilt, but, oh, promote thy cause. Let thy kingdom come. 
Let thy blessed interest be advanced in this world. Oh, do thou bring in great numbers to Jesus. Let me see that glorious day and give me to grasp for multitudes of souls. Let me be willing to die to that end. And while I live, let me labor for thee to the utmost of my strength, spending time profitably in this work, both in health and in weakness. It is thy cause and kingdom I long for, not my own. Oh, answer thou my request. And we ask this in Jesus' name, for his glory. Amen.